And those of you that are online, the peace of Christ be with you. Glad that you are joining with us. Good morning. I'm Shelton Woods, and today we are looking at a second part of a sermon. The first one was two weeks ago, and today is the second part. And here's the context of what we're going to be looking at. This is the Apostle Paul, and he has just been imprisoned in in Philippi, and then he's been run out of two cities, and he's running for his life, and so he's on his way to Corinth, but he has a stopover in in a place called Athens. Most of us have heard of Athens. And while he is there, he goes to the synagogue. He's He's received okay there. He goes to the marketplace. And then eventually we find him today uh, on trial, perhaps even for his life at the Areopagus. And and that's where we're at. But before I, I read our passage today, I want you to know that I don't know if there is in the New Testament a place that is more similar to the United States back 2,000 years ago than Athens, because Athens was the home of democracy. Athens was the place where education was supreme, where you wanted to go and get a degree. Athens was really keen on sports. So you put those things together, democracy, sports, all you need is a little bit of apple pie, right? And, and what you have is basically what the United States is in some sense today. And so we should be very interested. If Paul could come back to us, this might be kind of what his sermon would be. So let's begin reading in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is like a courtroom scene, and they said, okay, we want you to defend what you've said. Said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage. 
And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be ready to hear what you have to say to us. Our ears are dull, our tongues are weak, but your spirit is all-powerful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul was by himself in Athens, by the way. None of his brothers, none of the other Christians were with him, so he was all by himself. And uh, Luke writes this about uh, 12 to 14 years after this event took place. So, how did Luke know what what Paul said? Paul was by himself. Luke wasn't there. It happened. He writes fourteen years later. Many of you have heard this story. Perhaps somebody asked Winston Churchill, "Why did you write a seven-volume history on the history of the English?" And Churchill responded, "Because I didn't have time to write one." And what he meant by that is that to be able to summarize something is a very powerful thing. Now, it took me about two minutes to read this, but Paul probably spoke for two hours at the Areopagus. And so how did Luke find out? I think that Luke at some point said, well, Paul, there you were in the midst of the Stoics and the Epicureans. What did you say? And Paul might have thought, and he said, well, actually, I remember answering just three questions that they had. And I didn't quote any Old Testament. I didn't even mention, he doesn't even mention Jesus' name here. Um, I answered these three questions. What is God like? Where is God? And why should I care about God? And that's what we're going to look at briefly this morning. What is God like? Paul said, I've been, I've walked around and I've observed the objects of your worship and I see this altar to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I'm here to tell you who this unknown God is. And of course, my first question would be like, well, who died and made you king? (laughs) Could I please see your credentials? How come you get to decide what God is like? And I don't know if if you study the life of Paul, he was not eloquent. In fact, some people say he's really good with a pen, but when he's in front of you, he's really a poor speaker. He was so poor several times, we find in the book of Acts, that people fell asleep while he was speaking. I mean, Luke at one point says, and Paul went on and on and on. (laughs) Somebody fell asleep and fell off the window. I love how Paul answers this question in terms of where are my credentials. But maybe that's you here today. Who gives you the right to stand up and say what God is like? How come a Buddhist doesn't stand up here and tell us about ultimate reality? Or a Muslim? Or a Hindu? Why should I listen to the Christian message and not another message? He answers that question actually in verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stones, an image created by the imagination and art of man. I'm not here to tell you what I think. 
this thing that I have come up with. That's not why I'm here. Unlike you, this isn't something that I've dreamed up. I haven't looked deep inside of me to find the truth and come up with this God. My source of who God is didn't just pop up. It's based on time, space, history, and God's revelation. And how do I know this story? I know this story because God has preserved it. He's preserved it in history. He's preserved it in this book. I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with this book, but this book is the most historically accurate book. I mean, 300 years before Christ came, this book was translated into Greek. The, the Hellenistic world wanted to know, what are these books? 150 years before Christ came, there was a community in Qumran that had every book in the Old Testament written, all of Isaiah, and found in 1947, we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. God has, over time, preserved telling us who he is. But what I hear, especially at the university, is don't confuse me with the facts and evidence I trust myself. Here's something to keep in mind. The more, an indiv- the more a culture emphasizes individualism, the less likely they are to look at history and find any truth in history. The Bible is not this book that we go to when we're in trouble. And I would imagine there are many in this room that your life at some point was falling apart, and so you said, I've got to start reading this more. This book is not about what you need to do and need to be. This book is about what God has done. It doesn't start with, in the beginning, you. It starts with, in the beginning, God. This book is a grand narrative of who God is, and what he wants from each one of us. And when we go to this book looking to solve my marriage problems, to solve my economic problems, to solve, this book is about God saying, I am revealing myself to you. I am telling you who I am. And how does it begin? How does Paul begin without quoting from Scripture? Basically, he begins with once upon a time. He begins with in the beginning. I teach a course at the university that um, many, many freshmen take. It's called Life's Biggest Questions. And there are seven questions that throughout the semester we look at that humans from all time and all places, I'm a professor of East Asian history, that the Chinese, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, they've been asking these same questions. And there are seven big questions. And the one that we begin with is this. What is the first cause? What is ultimate reality? And look at verse 24. That's where Paul begins. The God who made the world and everything in it. Paul doesn't argue for the existence of God. He's speaking, by the way, to atheists and pantheists. He's, he's not arguing that there's a God. He is assuming that there's a God. He knows 
that when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, I have to wonder who has done that. There's another place where Paul talks about God can be known by just looking at what he has made in creation. But do you, you notice the emphasis that Paul puts, God who made the world and everything in it? In verse 25, he gives life and breath and everything to all of us. Every atom, every molecule, God who made everything, every eyelash in this room, every fingernail in this room. There are 7.6 billion people in the world right now. For every human being, this is uh, free in case you ever get into Jeopardy contests, but for every human being in the world, there are 50 birds in the world. That means there are 350 billion birds in the world right now. He made every beak of every bird in the world. There are one, and some of you aren't going to like this, there are one million billion ants in the world right now. Every egg that is laid, he has made. But what we do, we marvel at the painting and not the artist. We marvel at the building and not the architect and builder of that building. We marvel at the home run rather than the batter. We marvel at the squirrel rather than the maker of the squirrel. We marvel at what is looking back at us in the mirror rather than what God has made. God's creation is so beautiful that we overlook the creator, but that's where Paul begins. Jerry Spence, he's a very famous lawyer. He's written a, a book, a good book called How to Argue and Win Every Time. I don't think he has lost a court case. Uh, how, how does God argue and win every time? Go to the book of Job. And you'll find God starting to ask questions to us. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I brought out Orion? Isaiah, God asks us this question, um, lift up your eyes and see who, who's created all these. Who's made all of these? He who calls out the stars one by one every night, calling them each by name, God says. And because I am strong in power, not one of them is missing. So God is the maker of all things. That's what he's like. But he's just not the creator. He's a personal God. He's not this cosmic watchmaker or clockmaker that has wound up the universe and is just letting it run. Look at verse 26. He has determined the time and place of everyone's life. We had no choice when we were going to be born. We had no choice what race we were going to be part of. We had no choice of who our parents were going to be. Paul says... This God that I'm talking to you about, he knew exactly the night that you were conceived. He knew that we would be in this room together before the foundation of the world was ever made. The existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre gave a talk in 1947 
the atheist Sartre. And he, in this talk, he says, we are condemned as human beings to be free. What does it mean that we are condemned to be free? What he meant by that is we are just plopped into this world with no rhyme or reason, and we've got to make something out of our lives. Unlike a watch that's, Whoever made this watch, they made it so that we could tell time. If I have a pen, somebody made this pen, and they made this pen so that it could write. But he said human beings aren't that way. We haven't been made by anybody. And so here we are. We are condemned to be free. There's no morality, nothing that makes sense. We've got to live with that absurdity. And that's the biggest illusion, by the way, that I think America has today. Throwing off all God's set boundaries, thinking that we are absolutely free because there is no creator. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want there to be a creator. Um, we don't like boundaries. So you tell that fish that doesn't like the boundaries of water, go ahead and get out of the water. Uh, you, you tell that person who is flying 35,000 feet above our planet in an airplane. I don't like the boundaries of this airplane. Okay, go ahead and jump out of that airplane. You don't like that boundary. And that's what we're doing as our culture right now. God's made us. He knows what makes us flourish. And why did he do this? Paul actually asked this question. Why did he make him, Why does he want to be known? Why does he want us to seek him and feel our way towards him? which comes to our second point. So where is he? Where is this God? This all sounds really nice, but where is your God? He's not in your imagination. He's not in temples made by human hands. Where is he? Here's the question. Where is God not? God is everywhere. There's no place that God isn't that? And, and, and David says this in the Psalms, where can I go from your presence? I can't get away from you. Uh, so are we pantheists here? Are we saying God is everything? No, not at all. God is a personal God. He's not a force. But he's all beauty, all goodness, all truth, all perfection. If he is the source of all things, then he is everywhere. Now that's hard to grasp. I understand that. And God knew that it would be hard to grasp. He knew that we might scratch our heads and say, what does it mean that in him we live and move and have our being? And so what did he do? He became one of us. He became Emmanuel, God with us. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all things were made by him and through him and for him, this God-man Jesus. And so Paul says he's actually not far from each one of us. He is right here. He said, I don't see him. If I could see him, then I would believe in him. Don't you know that most people who saw Jesus didn't believe in him? He made the world, John tells us, yet the world that was made by him did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. 
But here's the good news, and this is why Paul is in Athens. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. To all who believed in his name. Have you believed in him? Have you put your faith in him? John Wesley was one of the great Methodist preachers, and I might have mentioned this years ago. He was dying, and as he was dying, he was being cared for by a nurse, Eliza Ritchie. And he just had a few more moments to live, and he was mumbling things, and and they couldn't understand him. If you've ever been with somebody who's dying, you know what I'm talking about. Finally, he said something very, very clear. And this is the last thing he said. And he said, best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. I'm here on my dying bed, and he's with me. When I came out of my mother's womb, he is with me. And if we are in Christ, he is with us. And then to our last point, why should I care about God? We see in verse 30 a a verse that you might not understand where it says, the times of your ignorance God overlooked, but not anymore. What does that mean? That God overlooked the ignorance, but he's not going to overlook it anymore. Does that mean that When he was overlooking things, the world was scot-free then. And every time my conscience said no and I did it anyway, God has overlooked that. He has winked at my past. I wonder what the Athenians thought. What do you mean that God has overlooked my past ignorance? Does that mean God has changed? That he, he used to be kind and he's not kind anymore? No. We get glimpses, actually, in the Bible when God did not overlook ignorance. When God sent the flood to destroy all of human wickedness, he said, I'm tired of overlooking that. When he looked down at Sodom and Gomorrah and saw what was going on there, God said, I'm tired of looking at that. I'm not going to overlook that anymore. You go to the book of Isaiah Nation after nation after nation, God said, I'm done with you. Paul, and you look at what happened to the Jews in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And Paul said, you Athenians, God has spared you. But not anymore. Because now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. You may not believe it. It's okay if you don't believe it. But this is a sure thing. He has fixed a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. This personal God will not be ignored. And we say, especially perhaps in America, why should he judge me? Why does there have to be a judge? I'm already being judged every day. 
I'm being judged on what I look like, what my grades are like, how much money I have, my waistline, my kids, my house, my car. I'm being judged every day. And now you're coming and you're saying that there's another judge and he's going to judge me. I'm tired of being judged. But this judge, he's going to be judging in righteousness. He's told us how to live. And he's going to ask us the questions, have you lived that way? He's given us a conscience, and he's going to say, have you followed your conscience? When it said, don't do that, don't say that, have you followed that? You say, well, I really, I don't have any problems with my conscience. That's great. Psychologists have a word for you. Uh, You're a sociopath if you have no conscience. And he's not going to judge on a sliding scale. He's going to judge in righteousness. So let me close by saying just three quick things about this judge and judgment. First of all, there has to be a judge. Have you ever thought about it? If there would be no judge, no action would actually be right or wrong. Really wouldn't. I mean, if there is no God, if this is all that there is, why in the world should we care what we do? In two million years, nobody's going to care whether I killed somebody or not. Nobody's going to care. It doesn't matter if there is no judge. But if there is a God who's going to judge in righteousness, everything matters. Maybe if you don't get anything else, get this. If God is not angry, he is not a God worthy of your worship. If God is not angry, he's not worthy of our worship. And if you don't believe that, either one of two things, either you haven't been thinking or you haven't really been wronged. You don't think that God is angry when somebody goes into an African village and steals 50 young women? When these soldiers go in and they take 50 young women and they go and abuse them and then torture them, and then kill them? You don't think that God is angry at that? You don't think that God is angry when you're holding the hands which I have of my Father as he's grasping for breath and dying? as I've held the hand of my sister while she is dying, you don't think God is angry at that? At what sin has done to us? Of what death does to us? We need a judge. That's just the first point. Second, real quick. Uh, uh, By the way, there is a judge. It's not you. Those that believe in um, practicing forgiveness of non-retaliation, something uh, put forward by Martin Luther King in the 1960s. Uh, The only way you can believe in that is you believe in a divine judge. That's the only way that you can do that. Okay, we need a judge. Second, we cannot bear judgment day. We can't bear it. The reason Jesus was so hated 
was because all the religious people thought that they were doing okay. They were checking all the boxes. And Jesus said, well, you know what? Because I'm everywhere, I'm also in your brain and in your heart. And when you hate somebody, you've murdered them. And when you lust against somebody, you've committed adultery with them. When you've looked at something that doesn't belong to you, you've stolen from somebody. It's all in your heart. And we are all going to have to stand before this judge. And it's not going to just be that what I've done with the outward part of my life. It's going to be my heart. And there's a good verse in the Bible that says, And the great day of his wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? And the answer is nobody. Nobody in this room. So we have to have a judge, and we can't stand in that judgment, which leads to verse number 31. Some of us have already been judged. Because he has given assurance to everybody that this day is coming by raising this man whom he has appointed as judge from the dead. You don't get to resurrection unless there's a crucifixion. There is no resurrection. There is no Easter without a Good Friday. And I want to tell you, those of you that are putting your hope in Jesus Christ, hear this good news this morning. You have already been judged. And God's anger against you has been poured out on a cross. And he looks at you and he says, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. Your sins have been taken care of. I've judged you when I sent my one and only son and he has taken on your sins. That's really good news. It's in space and time. Do you know it? I find it fascinating that Paul didn't begin his talk with judgment. He ended it with judgment. Every week, every week I have students come in asking questions, so lost. Do you know how far I would get with them if I start with, you're going to be judged and... Uh, I, I won't get very far, but do you notice how Paul starts? There's this loving God, and he knows you. He's determined, having determined the allotted place you were going to be born. He's done all of these things, but he's done this because he's a good judge, and he's going to judge this world. Will you repent? Will you come and believe on Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for who you are, your power that is displayed before our eyes every single day, for your word, which is not a manual for how we are to live, but it is a narrative of you and who you are, that we might seek you and perhaps feel our way towards you and find you 
Though actually you're not far from each one of us. You're everywhere. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the Godhead, who went to the cross and died for us. We pray through his name. Amen.